Happy Wednesday, everyone. I am Joe Marcello, joined as always by my partners in comic book crime, Orrin Phillips. Hey, everybody. And Mike Farah. Howdy, howdy. We are the Dollar Bin Bandits, and you're listening to the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast. This week, we are proud to bring to you another Orrin solo adventure. Uh, This is his interview with former Marvel editor Jim Salakrup. Now, Jim started his career at Marvel at the age of 15. And he turned that into an over 20-year career at Marvel. Uh, Eventually, he went on to work on uh, the Avengers, Uncanny X-Men, Spider-Man, and even oversaw the Kraven's Last Hunt storyline. Yeah, also one thing that he's doing now is uh, with paper cuts. Uh, We're all parents here, so to have uh, comic books and graphic novels that are geared towards kids our age, I think it's just a wonderful thing. And and it's so cool that he's the one who's in charge of it. Yeah, I really dug this conversation, Orrin. Uh, great job. Um, I thought the uh, section on Marvel Age, which he he sort of oversaw and sort of almost was a precursor to Wizard, was particularly interesting. And um, yeah, you know, I called this out on social already, but uh, look for that story with John Romita um, meeting Paul McCartney and the possibility of John Romita actually having done the Wings um, logo. I thought that was uh, fascinating as well. But let's get into it. Uh, this is Jim Salakrup. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, it's totally my pleasure, Oren. <laughs> I'm, I'm so curious because I just saw, uh, of course, through Wikipedia, that at a young age, you were bringing um, art and things over to the Comics Code office for Marvel. The Comics Code office, what was that made out of? Because I think of... Men in suits, just going over every little thing to make sure it wasn't offensive. It was uh, primarily a one-man operation. That guy was Leonard Darvin. It looked like at one point, and I know at, at, at certain points they, he, there, there, there were more people there, but it was um, the closest thing I could uh, compare it to. I mean, it was a law office, so it had a lot of file cabinets and things. But you know how on the old Andy Griffith show, I don't know if you watched that, mm-hmm. but like the sheriff's office had that little sort of like a fence in it and with a, with a door that opens up and you walk through that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's what that was like. It was, but it was in a uh, Manhattan office building mm-hmm. and you walk in and uh, you know, there was mostly uh uh, file cabinets, you know, bookcases, that kind of stuff, you know, some desks. And uh, this this one guy, um, Len Darwin, mm-hmm. uh, was, uh, you know, sort of handling everything. And uh, ironically, uh, many years later, I worked for uh, Stanley Media mm-hmm. and uh, Len Darwin's uh, great nephew, uh, Brady Darwin was an employee at uh, Stanley Media. He was in charge of doing uh, uh, research for them. So it was a, a, a weird <laughs> reunion of sorts. <laughs> now, was this one guy in charge of Marvel, DC, uh, Charlton Dell, anything else that came his way? Yeah. Wow. I couldn't imagine. And how quick, like a turnaround... I mean, you might not know this, but uh, did the comic companies have, you know, from when he read it to when he got things back to them so they can, you know, either make edits or, or publish? Uh, 
when I started, um, the reason they kind of hired me mm-hmm. was uh, they were running behind schedule. I mean, I, I imagine during the 60s, I mean, Marvel really didn't do more than a, like a, a dozen or so titles mm-hmm. a month. And so that was almost like uh, no more than two or three titles a week. Right. Uh, in the 70s is when they began their uh, rapid uh, uh, growth. And, uh, and as a result, they were falling behind schedule. And in the 60s, they would actually just mail the original artwork through the U.S. post office mm-hmm. downtown. And, you know, they'd get, I mean, they were just pretty much on schedule. You know, each book sort of had a regular team. It was, uh, you know, pretty very, or- it was very orderly. Right. Uh, but when this uh, expansion started, you know, they they were, uh, it was such a, a huge expansion that they didn't have enough people. They were understaffed. Um, you know, they were trying, they were trying to get whoever they could. Um, you know, there, there wasn't that many people. But so uh, uh, I think Jim Starlin or, or someone of that generation who started in the 70s would say, uh, Marvel hired anyone who could hold a pen. <laughs> You know, uh, which might explain how I got it. But, uh, you know, it was just this rapid expansion. So to answer your question, they went from, um, you know, you know, regular mail, special delivery. And there was no FedEx, no Internet. So they uh, were started using messengers, uh, which, uh, you know, one of the things (laughs) traditionally about Marvel uh, internally as a, as a company is they, they've always been, uh, oh, what shall we call it? Uh, frugal? Frugal. And uh, <laughs> so, so Saul Brodsky, who was, uh, you know, paying attention to the, you know, the money going out, realized that they could probably hire a, a full-time messenger instead of paying all these, uh, you know, one-shot messenger fees. Mm-hmm. And uh, Roy Thomas, who was the uh, editor at the time, um, wisely had a policy that if they were going to hire anyone, you know, uh, no matter what the position was, it would be helpful if they knew something about comics. In other words, the uh, stereotype of a messenger back then was some old guy, you know, retired, smoking a cigar, sitting in the reception area, waiting for the next package to deliver. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whereas uh, by hiring me, you know, they were able to get me to do all, you know, sorts of work on the comic books. I mean, they needed someone, believe it or not, <laughs> to cut out those. Remember on the bottoms of the, the, the page numbers mm-hmm. and the to be continued after next page. Someone had to cut those out and tape them onto the bottoms of uh, wow. the original artwork. That was me. <laughs> And in the early 70s, they, because they were expanding so much, there was a few years there where they even had like little advertising blurbs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, see what Namor is up to and uh, the new issue of the, the Fenders or, you know, and someone had to cut those out, scotch tape them. In. <laughs> so, so that's sort of how I got in. I was the guy to help them, uh, uh, you know, save as much time as possible, uh, you know, and save some money 
Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would bring it to the uh, comics code. How long would it take? Uh, I it was probably uh, for the most part on a first come first serve basis, but I'm sure if uh, if they didn't take advantage of the system too much and they said, hey, hey, we're really light on this one. Can you do help us out? Uh, you know, I, I I think they were probably agreeable. And uh, you know, how long does it take to? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, back then they were like you know seventeen page stories or something. Uh, Right. As a young man, I just couldn't imagine. And being a comic fan, too, here you are in the thick of it. I mean, right. this is the days of there were legends all over the place. What was the first moment that hit you like, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't believe this is happening? Uh, from the very beginning. I mean, I was encouraged because uh, I just had a streak of good luck, you know, like when I first found out about fanzines, I would send stuff in and it would get published. Uh, you know, I, I would read interviews in those fanzines because I figured, oh, you know, one day I'd probably like to work in comics. Wouldn't that be great? Right. And uh, one of the things I would see pop up in a lot of the uh, interviews with artists was they'd say, oh, I started uh, as a gopher or I was I was like an assistant. I cleaned the, the, the pen points. I fill in areas of black. I erase, you know, pencil lines. And, uh, and that stuck with me. And so one year uh, in 71, I saw there was a kid's magazine called, shockingly, called Kid's Magazine. And uh, one of the co-editors was Jeanette Kahn, who later went on to be president of DC Comics. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I just figured out oh, what the heck, you know, I was getting my work published and like, you know, first like the school newspaper and then fanzines and, you know, I'll send something into this, you know, right. the premise of the magazine was uh, for kids by kids and the cutoff was 14 years old. So I, I sent some work in and, uh, you know, I don't think I heard anything right away. But the magazine was originally located in um, uh, St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri. But then they moved to uh, New York City on, at 777 Third Avenue. Uh, and it seems I always keep getting hired when companies are in uh, deadline crunches. <laughs> and uh, so they had just moved to New York. So someone looked through the submissions and, and like, see, there's kids in New York who we could call into the office and get them to, to, to get some work so we could get the next issue out. And I was one of those kids. They called me up. I came in. I did writing. I did art. I think I even did a, I did a cover, a, a, a cover for a magazine published nationally available on the newsstand when I was 14. There was one other kid there. I like telling this all the time. Uh, not to be gloating or anything, but <laughs> originally I was a little uh, jealous of him. Uh, you know, he was, uh, I felt, you know, maybe drew a little better than I did and, and wrote better than I did. And um, over the years, as it turned out, you know, I'm the one now who had the uh, big career in comics and he had to settle for being the uh, producer on Seinfeld and The Simpsons, and that's uh, my old buddy uh, Tim Gamble. Wow! Yeah, I think that's his name. Can't even remember anymore. 
Plays right. Yeah, I don't even remember the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice guy. He was funny. Yeah. But he, he still tries to get into comics, but uh, he'll never make it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, yeah, so uh, actually there was Janet Khan, uh, him, and, uh, and me. Uh, one of the things we did back then, which didn't get published, uh, <laughs> is we went up to uh, Mad Magazine and, and interviewed Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein. And uh, a few years ago, we had a, uh, a, a, a reunion lunch, you know, uh, uh, you know, Gamble and Khan and me. And uh, I, over the years, my memory of the event uh, softened. And I just thought that the problem was that I was too much of a, fan and this was a general interest children's magazine so i thought my questions were a little bit too inside yeah. and uh and gamel said his name is tom gamel there, there we go i was close tim yeah. tom one letter off <laughs> tom tom said no 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 that's not what happened at all uh what happened is naively i was asking all these questions about harvey kurtzman and at some point, uh, Al Feldstein sort of, uh, you know, flipped his lid, got mad and, you know, turned that tape recorder off, you know, and they did. And then he points his finger at me like, how the hell do you know who Harvey Kurtzman is and all that? So, uh, <laughs> so all that got scrapped. And yeah. so the adult editors had to send some, you know, dopey questions to the uh, editors at mad and you know they ran that instead but right. uh, hey so much for truth and advertising but the experience uh you know just sort of like you know up until that point every time i keep sending something in uh it worked out for me so i thought you know at that point i was uh, uh planning to attend the high school of art and design in manhattan which was uh only a few blocks away from marvel comics mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of you know, comics people went there, and even uh, the one of the great comic book artists from the fifties and the EC comics, etc. Bernie Creekstein was even teaching there. Um, so I figured, you know, I got accepted. It was one of those schools of a vocational high school in New York where you had to present your portfolio, and you know, mm -hmm. they would decide whether you were worthy to attend there their school or not. And I, I made it in and uh, I figured again, what, what do I got to lose? Let me, I, I sent a little postcard and I figured, you know, maybe to get it noticed, I, uh, I drew a little like Herb Trimpey ish type of Hulk, you know, and uh, my basic offer, I guess I intuitively knew, uh, you know, what Marvel's uh, budgets were like. I said, I'll be your slave. You know, because you know, being a fan, you, you really are willing, you know, to, to work at Marvel. And uh, much to my surprise, I got a uh, a postcard back and they said, come, you know, to our real offices. I sent the postcard to the address in the comic books, okay. which was 625 Madison Avenue, which was the, you know, the offices of magazine management. But Marvel had their own offices at 635 Madison, which was never listed in the comics. And they were upstairs from the National Lampoon. Hmm. And uh, and I, I went there and 
I met John Ramita on the first day, and he gave me a tour of the bullpen. And uh, the only way I could describe it, because I was essentially a, a you know a poor kid from the Bronx, mm-hmm. and you know dreamed about these comics, and and so you know to me it felt like I was a mere mortal, suddenly transported to Asgard. Mm-hmm. And I was walking amongst, you know, seeing all my comic book gods. And, you know, I was struck uh, dumb, you know, which uh, now that I do these interviews, uh, people wish I would be struck dumb more often. Because <laughs> I don't think so. You ask a simple question and I go, I could go on for three <laughs> hours. But, uh, but yes, that was the, the, it was just unbelievable to me. This is something I, I thought was you know, unattainable, maybe in my wildest dreams, you know, right. uh, I, I might be able to, but there I was. And, you know, and, and suddenly, uh, you know, Stanley knew who I was. Uh, Herb Trimpey was there, Marie Severin. Uh, um, you know, it, it was just unbelievable. So I, the way I like to tell it again is I was like a pit bull. Once I was once I got a hold of, I got my jaws around Marvel's leg. <laughs> I didn't let go for about 20 years. And uh, I, I just loved it. It was just uh, unbelievable. I loved every second of it. I, I learned so much from it. And uh, uh, it, it was really great. And uh, even now, uh, uh, though I'm working uh, full time, I have a, a co-owner of Paper Cuts, which is a, a we do graphic novels for kids. I, I still find time, and I'm lucky that they they ask me to do them. Uh, write these little introductions to various Marvel masterworks that are reprinting, you know, stories that I edited like 30 years ago. So uh, it's fun to you know get these checks from uh, from <laughs> Disney that I'm working for now. But uh, <laughs> But it's fun. It's fun to be back and reflecting upon that stuff and reliving those memories. I have to ask because, you know, you're talking about, you know, being a kid in in Asgard, as you said. And when you become an editor and you're working with some of these talents, how do you handle moments where, you know, sometimes maybe you have to have a tough conversation with maybe uh, a well-known artist or a well-known writer, or you come into a book that's had an established, you know, duo or, or group working with it. How do you set the create the rapport between you guys so you know people don't get all uh, offended that if you make a change or a criticism of their work? Well, uh, I didn't go instantly from being a messenger to editing. Right. I sort of did a good every job. I, I was running this the stat machine. The, uh, I was uh, doing paste ups, production work, uh, uh, anything you know, like just just to the the stay there. Uh, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I, I just, just by being there, you had an advantage because like you could overhear them when they're saying, who can we get to do this? And here I am. <laughs> and uh, so a, a lot of how you learn things at, uh, at Marvel during that period uh, was, I guess, by example, you would see other people. And, and and I was uh, fascinated by all these people, so I was just you know studying them very carefully. Right. And there were different approaches, and uh, the approach that I 
observed that worked best and inspired me the most was Stan's. And uh, I think it was crucial to how he worked. And in some ways it would backfire and it would, same thing would happen to me is that he would, he, re, he knew that artists such as Jack Kirby or John Buscema, Steve Ditko, et cetera, et cetera, were, you know, working uh, alone and, and putting a lot of effort into what they're doing. And a lot of them, before they worked for Stan at Marvel, uh, the situation at other companies would be these uh, rougher editors uh, who they, you know, the pages would come in and, you know, like they, uh, like all the editors would care about was the deadline, all the freelancer would, you know, like, you know, where's my check? Where's my next script? And it was rather gruff, you know, here's your next one, you know, like uh, it, it, it wasn't anything about, like, you know, they, they looked, they themselves, in a sense, were looking down at comics. But Stan was going for a certain type of, of art and storytelling, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that he had to be very hands-on and, and inspiring the artist to do what he wanted, to understand what he wanted. Uh, he was also, Marvel in the 60s wasn't the biggest company early on uh so they didn't have the same budget you know other companies you know they probably outdid charlton but you know dc was probably the you know the top company paying more money so what do you do and uh whether it was a a plan or a strategy or just a reflection of who stan was is that when he got something he liked he didn't hesitate to lavish a lot of praise and say, oh, my God, Jack, you did it again. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Hey, Saul, look, you know, look at that Dr. Doom. You know, like it's it's a. Uh, there was a, a, an appreciation that probably up until that point, uh, these artists had never gotten from uh, an editor before, and it almost became like a drug. And uh, and also they were, you know, the famous Marvel method. They were more involved in in the storytelling, and, and you know, it was, it was a a more organic process. You know, like part of it was, uh, you know, like these artists still lived in the real world. A lot of them, their you know, priority was, you know, they got a supportive family or pay their bills, so they needed the work. So. One of the reasons that Marvel method sort of began was what was the point of Stan batting out a script for Jack Kirby, where, you know, Jack knew how, you know, could probably, you know, plot it out better than Stan. Uh, so rather than waiting around to keep, you know, this is a very conscious effort on Stan's part, trying to keep the artists busy. Uh, you know, like, let's just hash out a, a story idea. You draw it, I'll script it. So they were getting more involved. And then when they would bring the pages in, it's not as if Stan wouldn't reject something. He would. Uh, but a lot of times, the you know, there, there are obvious ways to handle this type of thing. Answer your question. 
And by watching Stan working, I sort of picked them up and adopted a lot of that myself. For example, working with a, you know, a, a huge talent, like say John Byrne. And there were other editors that may have found him difficult to work with uh, for whatever reason. You know, it, to my mind, John was just someone who cared passionately about the work he was producing. He, he was putting everything he got into it. And I enjoyed that work. So when a package, you know, uh, of his artwork, you know, it was a new issue, say, of Fantastic Four came in. It was, you know, I was back to being, you know, the little fanboy, awesome. you know, looking at every page and, 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 and recognizing how great it was and, and just truly appreciating it. So when it, so when I would speak to John, uh, I could, I mean, a part of it is making sure you're being 100 percent honest. You know, it's not about you know manipulating or anything like that. It's being honest uh, and just giving them honest feedback and, and letting them know up front, you know, how much you enjoy what they're doing because it means a lot. They put that effort in. They're not getting feedback from anyone else at this point. So it really matters what you say. Then, if before I called them, I went over the work and there were maybe a couple of areas where I thought could be strengthened or, you know, a better approach. Say if it wasn't just a a plot outline or something like that, you know, I would express, again, honestly, all the enthusiasm for all the positive stuff I thought that was there. Mm. And, And they would enjoy that. And then, you know, like, you know, like uh, they may even say, well, what do you think of this? Or, you know, or unpro- unprompted, they might, I might say, well, there was a couple of little things and, and they're almost eager to please at this point. You know, like, you know, what do you mean? What, which, which part, you know, oh, I, it's, it's okay the way it is. No, no, tell me, uh, you know, well, this bit here, you know, and a lot of times I would offer a suggestion, you know, I thought maybe, you know, instead of this, it maybe would be stronger if it was like this. And invariably, would, that would be enough to inspire them to come up with an even better, you know, solution to whatever the, the story problem was. Right. And it became a fun process. And what you would do, what you would be doing as the editor is, you know, building credibility that you're on their side. You're trying to make their work look as good as possible. I was not one of those editors who wanted to be a dictator and uh, you got to do everything my way or this is how I would do it. When I, Because when I did freelance work and worked for editors like that, mm. I wouldn't say this out loud to them, but in my mind, I'd be thinking, well, if you want it that way, why did you hire me? Why did you just do it yourself? I don't understand. If you're going with big talent, you want them to be as much them as possible. You could offer them a little guidance and feedback, you know, help them along. And But you, the interest is, is to try to make them as good as possible. What I was mentioning before, how sometimes this, you know, process could backfire is, uh, you know, I don't think I'm revealing any secrets to say, that, you know, Stan was given to hyperbole and had a tendency to exaggerate at times. <laughs> but but I think what would happen is that 
he would be a little over the top in giving out this praise mm-hmm. and saying, oh, yeah, I could never do this without you. You're, you're, you're doing everything. I, 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 it's like, I, I should, you know. Yeah. And what would happen is they'd begin to believe that, which wasn't 100% true. Yes, they were contributing a tremendous amount, but so was Stan. And so was Stan subtly guiding them and, you know, but he was doing it in such a successful way mm-hmm. that it was, and I've seen this happen, you know, many times with lots of different editors, lots of writers, lots of artists, right. is that they become, you're so good at getting them involved that sometimes you would give them ideas and then after, you know, months would pass or years, they think they came up with it. You know, which wasn't always the case. You know, it's like it's not like they're uh, consciously lying and taking credit, you know, for something they didn't do. It's like they truly would believe, yeah, I did this and I did everything. And 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 like then it would just go to an extreme where, well, what do I need that Stan Lee guy for? I'm doing everything. Uh, you know, I could write this myself. You know, he's just copying my notes, you know, <laughs> the borders. You know, it, 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 I, I've had it where there was a process where I would go through uh, assistant editors where there would be the honeymoon period in the beginning where they were just happy, like I was, to be working, you know, as a Marvel editor. Right. You know, it's just exciting and thrilling. Uh, that's the honeymoon uh, you know, period. Mm-hmm. Then there's reality setting in. You know, a job is a job. Everything's work. Yep. And what would happen? So, but and I'd be doing the same thing. I'd be telling my assistants, "Oh, you're doing great. You're really helping me. You know, I, how could I do this without you?" And they would see me having so much fun enjoying my job, even though it was a lot of work for me as well. Right. They'd be thinking. Oh, you know, the resentment would set in and like, you know, but I made it a policy to never hold anyone back. And and, and invariably, <laughs> most of these assistants would come back to me years later and, and they'd say, you know, because it, when they left, they like they couldn't wait to get away and then they'd be having fun and all that. But then they encountered reality and they said, you were the best boss I ever had. I never knew. I didn't appreciate how good it was and how much you were letting me do and da, 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 you know, you know, like, uh, you know, so I wish them all well, a lot of them all turned out very well. So, but, but, but it's great to also get that positive feedback years later, you know, so. hundred uh, percent. Mm-hmm. And I, I was going to say one of my favorite teams uh, at Marvel was yourself, Mike Zek, JMD Mateus stuff you guys are doing with Captain America, with Spider-Man. I mean, it seemed like everything was sort of hitting on all cylinders with a lot of that stuff. Uh, what are your memories of uh, the, the triad working together? Uh, I lucked into uh, a lot of it. Uh, uh, on Captain America, I helped put them together, and then uh, they continued on later with other editors as well. Mm-hmm. Um on Spider-Man, I really did that, that whole um, uh, Craven's Last yeah, Hunt, hunt. Yeah. Uh, which uh, <laughs> uh, he'll, he acknowledges was my title. 
but it wasn't called that until the uh, the collected edition. Okay. Because if you think about it, it's giving away the ending. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I think the uh, the original you know uh, title was some kind of takeoff on Blake. You know, was it Spider Spider Burning Bright, whatever. Okay. Uh, it's a tiger type, uh, whatever it was, and uh, you know, it was a good title, but. I tended to be, you know, heavily influenced by Stan. So uh, I would go for titles, you know, I, I thought, uh, you know, Stan probably would have went with. But uh, that story, uh, J.M., uh, he's gone from Demetrius to Dematis, back to Demetrius again. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he found out that's how it was originally uh, supposed mm-hmm. to be pronounced. So I could respect that. Yeah. Uh, with, with a name like Salakrup, uh, however <laughs> anyone wants to pronounce it, it's okay with me. As, <laughs> it's uh, a I ballpark. I owe, as long as it was spelled correctly on the check, uh, that's all I care about. <laughs> but uh, that particular story in various forms was something he had, uh, I think, originally proposed as a Batman story for DC. Okay. Imagining uh, with the Joker, or I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, and they didn't go for it for whatever reasons. And then he, I think at Marvel at some point, he was pushing it as a Wonder Man story, and then that didn't happen. Hmm. And uh, at some point, he managed to uh, sell it as a Spider Man story to then editor uh, Jim Housley, okay. who uh, you know now pronounces it Christopher Priest, and uh. And Tom DeFalco, and, and they they bought it. And so when I came in as Spider-Man editor after um, uh, Christopher Priest, mm-hmm. uh, it was already underway. Okay. And, uh, and, and here's an example of what I was telling you uh, about creators thinking they came up with a particular idea. Um, it was already underway before I was editor of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened during my tenure was that we decided Peter Parker, uh, Mephisto notwithstanding, would marry Mary Jane and uh, Spider-Man would be married. Mm-hmm. So that was a big deal. And uh, what happened is, uh, even though the, pl- the story was completely plotted, in the scripting stages, I was uh, suggesting to uh, Demetrius that, you know, we want Mary Jane to be this, you know, there, he's, he's, he's going to be married. And this is he's a big, important character now. Yeah. And uh, and he, of course, you know, you know, wrote it that way. And because uh, he's, you know, a great writer, he, he does, does, you know, he makes everything work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so flash forward to a, a, a panel uh, at a comic book convention where we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Craven's last hunt. And, uh, and he's talking about how, you know, important it was the Mary Jane stuff. And, and uh, like, he, you know, he was convinced that was his idea. Right. And I'm thinking, no, I mean, it, it was a result of the wedding thing right. which you know and, and you know, like and but 
it wasn't, again, it wasn't, he would never claim credit for something that he didn't think he came up with himself. But I think what happens is over the years, I mean, he did write every single word. He, he did write it, but, you know, but I was just that little, you know, bird in his ear saying, you know, play up this thing, uh, particularly during the, the sequence uh, where um, Spider-Man is, you know, literally crawling up out of the grave. Yes. And, uh, yeah. and it was on that panel that, uh, you know, because over the years, you know, 30 years, I had a lot of time to think about those stories <laughs> and reflect on them. And, uh, you know, Frank Miller, uh, I, I remember talking to him once and, and he was saying, and I, I think it's very true. It's like every time you think you come up with something, no one's ever done it before. You look back at the old comics and you realize everything was done before. You know, like he'd say, you know, Frank would say, oh, I ripped up Batman's costume. But hey, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, they ripped up Spider-Man's costume. He was like, everything's been done before. Right. So, in you know, thinking this Craven's last hunt, we've done, you know, so much of this uh, was new and powerful. Uh, you know, I mentioned on the panel <laughs> uh, that that sequence reminded me of the most famous Spider-Man sequence of Spider-Man under all the the rubble. Yes, you know, by Ditko mm -hmm. and thinking of his Aunt May and and like having to go on yeah. and on the panel and like and he was very candid. He said, "I I, I never thought of that before." <laughs> <laughs> but you know there are echoes of that, and but you know the, the but the same thing would happen later on. You know, like uh, I think uh, uh, Dan Slott, who had a great run years later on Spider Man, mm -hmm. did a sequence uh, called the Superior Spider Man, mm -hmm. uh, which you know Spider Man and Doc Ock sort of exchange brains or something. But mm -hmm. it was almost again the same concept of the villain wanting to become the hero, you know, Craven, yeah. you know, I'll become a better Spider-Man than Spider-Man, you know, superior Spider-Man, the whole, there's the concept right there. Doc Ock wants to become a superior Spider-Man. So these ideas sort of keep going forward and et cetera, et cetera. I, I think uh, one of my other, Heroes, in addition to Stanley and a few others, was Andy Warhol. And he once said something along the lines of, you know, the way to succeed is take a, you know, a, a successful old idea and make it seem new. And, you know, that happens all the time. That is very true. And I, but I they, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. No, no, all you. Oh, I was just going to say that everyone on that uh, involved in making these, it was just a, a real pleasure. You, you. Right. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm still in the habit of uh, thinking of him as Dematis, but you know, Dematis was just wonderful, great writer. Always puts in a hundred percent. You know, always you know striving to do his best. Uh, someone like Mike Zeck, I think you could see uh, which story sometimes, you know really inspire him to do, you know, his best work, right. you know, something like Craven's Last Hunt, some of the stuff he did on Shang-Chi, some of the stuff he did on Punisher, you know, even though that shirt is great <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he did some great covers, 
Right. I think on, on Secret Wars, uh, not, uh, I, I think the challenge for him there, because uh, I don't think that's uh, the norm. I mean, I don't think nothing against the Secret Wars storyline, right. but lots of superheroes. I mean, Mike is not the kind of guy who dreamed of drawing the Avengers or the X-Men or anything like that. He's more of a single yeah. character guy. So Captain America, he'd love to do Spider, any one of these. But all of them together is, is overwhelming, and, <laughs> and and it's just a challenge to to finish it. You know, whereas uh, if you have something with just a few characters and lots of dramatic stuff, you know, very moody stuff, that's you know that's where where he's great. You oh, know, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, but also, I want to talk about your writing because you did write as well. Um, I I I. Foolishly, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I was like one of the, like the, in Wayne's world where they meet Alice Cooper and they say they're not worthy. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of, you know, I, I, I see people do this all the time. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're exposed to such great material that, the idea, you know, that we dare say that we're a writer too, <laughs> if we're comparing ourselves to the best of, of people who come before us, mm-hmm. not realizing, well, maybe, maybe even Stan Lee, when he was in his twenties, wasn't turning out the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that 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 may not be the material he's he's, he's best known for. Uh, so you have to, you know, look at it relatively. But I think I was uh, a bit overwhelmed and intimidated. So in a bizarre way, I, I even though I had opportunity and, and people like Jim Shooter wanted his editors to be writing, you know, titles and things like that, I was always trying to, I was like around the fringes. You know, I really, uh, I, I, I don't think I did any really uh, main, I, I would edit, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't write sort of the Marvel Universe core titles. I would do licensed titles. I would do like Spidey Super Stories, which was sort of the the kitty version of, of Spider Man. Like right? Yeah, yeah. I would. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I would do uh, you know Kool Aid Man. You know, oh, you know weird things that would come in. You know, uh, early Transformers comics. I wrote uh, uh, the A Team. A Team. I love doing that. I mean, that we had. Uh, no time whatsoever. And, uh, you know, I, I saw one entire episode and how to edit and write, uh, how to edit three issues. And uh, uh, this was something that was originally given to uh, Jim Shooter and the edit- you know, and the normal Marvel editorial departments put together because somehow they, Marvel, the, the big wigs that worked out a deal with Universal and, uh, you know, some chain of stores that agreed, well, if you could do an A-team comic book, we'll buy a gazillion of them. We'll sell them in, you know, in a bag, you know, three, four, whatever. Right. And, uh, but the deadline was impossible. So Jim said, no, no, we can't do it. Mm-hmm. And there was another department that I did a lot of work for, which was headed by Saul Brodsky. And, uh, and he was a, he was like Stan's right-hand man in the 60s. So he was the one always figuring out how to make things work. Right. So I would I worked for him and it was, you know, it, you know, it, it was just a fraction of the time mm-hmm. 
you know, I think we had to have the books printed, like uh, from the time we started to a month later. And normally it would be three months before it was ever even sent to the printer. Right. But uh, so, so uh, we were working around the clock on that. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I got to work with uh, Marie Severn penciled one story and uh, uh, Jim Mooney did the other. Joe Giella inked it. It was, uh, I think, Chick Stone inked Marie's story. So it was like getting to work with a lot of Silver Age pros. Uh, and it, it, it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun, crazy I'm, but fun. Yeah, I'm curious how uh, we haven't really spoken with this with anyone. Uh, licensed work, I would mm-hmm. imagine the company that you're doing the work for, uh, you know, whether at least at Kool Aid or um, you know with the A Team or Transformers, is that are they constantly putting pressure to be like, hey, we have to make sure this stays within the message that we want to send, or that it ties back into the show. I mean, as yeah. a writer, that has to sort of be a pain where it's, you know, you sort of want to be creative, but at the same time, you need to follow guidelines set by sort of a third party. If you're creative, you figure out ways to have fun with uh, anything. That's that's the challenge. I, I would enjoy these things tremendously. Yeah. Uh, the main thing is I just wasn't as intimidated uh, by it, you know. Right. Uh, you know, before I wrote a lot of those comics, there weren't comics of any of those characters before so it it was i I would be doing it first uh and i was slowly easing out of uh uh my fear of writing the the main uh uh marvel characters you know i I started uh i was was almost putting spider-man into everything i was doing there was a i did a two-issue thing uh you know based on uh the tv show sledgehammer Yes. And I, I had a, a, a fake Spider-Man in the second issue. Uh, when I did Transformers, you know, like, uh, you know, when, when they offered it to me, I figured everyone else in the world must have turned this down if they're, <laughs> they're asking me to do it. Because I'm like the most unlikely candidate to write that because uh, half the characters turn into cars and I don't know how to drive. You know, I... <laughs> I still don't have a, you know, I don't drive. I live in the city. I, mm-hmm. you know, if they had a, you know, subway man or something like that, <laughs> I'd be better suited. You know, they, it was all mechanical stuff. And so in a way, uh, for me, uh, putting Spider-Man in it was a character, uh, you know, I I knew. And he could be my entry into that world. So while, while he's meeting them, it's like me meeting them. Right. And, uh, you know, so... So that was my my way of doing, but uh, it it varied from project to project. I mean, whatever uh, the goals were, mm-hmm. you know, I I, I was uh, happy to do it. I mean, uh, I mean, I would write uh, all sorts of silly things. Uh, some somewhat serious. It was like a uh, uh, a Spider Man Power Pack uh, Child Abuse Prevention comic yep. that I edited. I mean. Uh, I had the power pack story uh, done by uh, uh, Louise uh, Simonson and uh, June Brigman, who were the creators of power pack. And that only made sense, you know, they're available, you know, it's like, uh, but there was so much going to be requested to be in the Spider-Man story that just for the sake of meeting the deadlines and ease of editing, right. Instead of being the middle person, like the people telling me what they want, 
I could just put that into a story okay. rather than try to explain it to another writer and then have to edit it and, and be in, but you know, I just wanted to, it to go as quickly and smoothly as possible. So, but you know, then there'd be things like the Spider-Man and Hulk toilet paper, which uh, I absolutely love doing because, uh, you know, I, uh, there was a period there where the printing on Marvel comics had, and comics in general was so poor. Mm-hmm. They had switched to this flexographic printing and the lines would get all wiggly and it was just terrible. And the paper was as cheap as possible. And artists would be complaining, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, the standards are so bad and the production is so bad. It's like they're printing the comics on toilet paper now. Well, <laughs> I'm the only one who could honestly say my work was printed on toilet paper. So, uh, <laughs> you but, but it was but it was just fun. and. And I also thought uh, when, you know, a lot of times when Marvel characters would appear in other types of things, Mm -hmm. like, say, Spidey Super Stories or what have you, instead of writers who are unfamiliar, you know, with comics or or the Spider-Man comics, you know, doing, you can always tell, like, oh, they don't know who these characters are. You know, like I remember in the 60s, there was a... um, uh, uh, a, a big little book of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And uh, it was drawn in a very Kirby style by Herb Trimpey and, and John Verporten. But the, the writer who wrote it was, uh, you know, someone who never wrote for Marvel. And, you know, it was, you know, like the villain was Dr. Weird. And it was like, <laughs> eh, what is this? Right. You know, whereas I felt I could throw in a, a lot of, you know, stuff that would be cool from a Marvel fan's point right. of view. Well, I mean, this kind of brings me to the question I wanted to ask you. I don't know if you worked on this project. Um, I have it here. I know you guys covered it in this Marvel Age you edited, and that's the Quest Probe situation. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't work on that, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I think uh, Bob Budiansky worked on that, who was my assistant at one point, but then he went on to you know, what, bigger and better things. <laughs> do you have any memories of this? Because I just know that it was supposed to be 12 issues. They got three out. And then I guess the Quest Pro people ran out of money and it just ended like that. You know, you probably know more about it than <laughs> I do. And uh, right. I, I really wasn't involved. But uh, I with Marvel Age, I was involved with it for, I think I edited it for uh, eight years. Yeah. And uh, my contribution is that like that little corner box mm-hmm. where you see like those... Uh, pseudo pac-man characters uh, going after forbish man i mean i i uh, i i just couldn't resist i mean forbish man was virtually forgotten mm-hmm. at, at that point uh, in marvel but i i dragged them back to be sort of the marvel age mascot and uh <laughs> that was an important thing for me to edit i i felt uh uh you know growing up with the 60s uh marvel stuff Mm-hmm. You know, the Stanley's impact through the letter columns, the bullpen page, the soapbox, his footnotes, and, you know, all that is, is, is talking directly to the, uh, the readers right. was, uh, I thought, incredibly important. And uh, before I started editing Marvel Age, I mean, the whole thing was sort of run out of uh, the, um, 
direct sales department. Okay. And, you know, as a promotional, you know, thing to push, you know, sales of the comics. Mm-hmm. But I felt, uh, you know, there's a way to do it. And uh, uh, where, you know, it could be enjoyable unto itself, the way Stan would, you know, have the Mighty Marvel checklist talking. You know, as a kid, I couldn't wait to read those things and see what was happening in the other comics. And I had to pick up those comics. So I, I looked at this as sort of like an expanded bullpen page. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I got Fred Hembeck involved. Uh, Mark Grunewald wrote a column. Stan Lee did a, a soapbox column. I mean, it was tons of stuff. Uh, yeah, where it was like, to me, that was very important. I mean, before I took over, like maybe there were like just a few, uh, like maybe seven issues before I took over and like three or four different editors. Right. Once I was on there, you know, I was on it pretty much uh, until I, I, I left the editing comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was even assumed because I started as a freelance editor on it. When I came back on staff at the Spider-Man titles, uh, Jim Shooter said, well, you don't have to edit the Marvel Age anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. Which was crazy from any sort of uh, financial point of view, because I was at a point where Marvel was giving, you know, everyone royalties, you know, the writers, artists, even the editors. And um, I chose to do that. And I mean, it was like, there were no, there were never any royalties on Marvel Age. It was virtually a free giveaway, <laughs> and it took about the same amount of time that I probably could have edited three or four comic books, which would have brought in even more money for me. Right. But I just thought that was so important, and and I enjoyed it. I liked magazine editing as well as comics editing, uh, so it was a tremendous amount of fun for me. So. And this book has found uh, a huge new light uh, recently uh, with the speculator market because Marvel Age, in many ways, was the first appearance of a lot of characters or a lot of ideas or, you know, things that became major events in comics. And, you know, I I see now people posting and things like that, that these books, uh, people are just trying to gobble them up as fast as they can. Well, once there was a point where they couldn't give them away, and now, right. now, now they're. And I used to write about it, even like uh, I think there was a point there, like when Wizard Magazine was the big thing, yep. and uh, and that was uh, Wizard was uh, created by uh, Garrett Sheamus, mm-hmm. and uh, he would explain that uh, he got the whole idea for Wizard from Marvel Age. That's he a- thought. Well, that's like he thought it was a great he appreciated Marvel Age. And he thought, boy, what if there was a magazine that not only covered Marvel, but, you know, covered, you know, DC and Image and everything else. And uh, and uh, was, uh, you know, had real magazine production values, color photos, good paper. You know, I was working, you know, know, basically, uh, you know, comic book format. Right. uh, uh and it wasn't back then very uh wasn't photographs didn't uh, no. uh work out too well on it but we would do you know the probably one of the most ambitious things we did was uh one issue we did a, a day in the life of marvel comics mm-hmm. where it was a specific day where we had our little marvel age reporters embedded with all the editorial teams 
and they were all writing up what you know happened and, and then someone else edited the whole thing into one big article i think kurt music may have been my assistant editor at that point you know it was a lot of great talent even uh, you know all sorts of people contributed to marvel age it was a great experience and uh uh you know it's great to see marvel appreciating it as well now all these years later at the time they were almost ashamed of it some of the, the corporate people felt oh this is embarrassing we're selling our own advertising you know it was a lot more than advertising yeah. and uh, and what what i see now is there'll be you know marvel masterworks or what have you will run little articles that were in marvel age originally mm-hmm. you know interviewing the creators of the series or the previews or having unpublished stuff that appeared in marvel age and and yeah. running it as a sort of like bonus material in, in the masterwork so i i'm I'm proud to see the material live on. <laughs> oh, no, it, it, what you're saying is like we're on the money because it's awesome. Um, like you said, there early interviews about projects. And, you know, maybe things got tweaked a little bit when the project actually came out. But to hear the original ideas, I know I have one. Uh, Rob Leefield put in some, uh, I guess, early sketches for Cable and uh, Strife uh, before that they, you know, they're being fleshed out as a character. And you can see, you know, Cable had a brown outfit on and stuff like that. And, you know, little things like that, it's it's awesome to have these as a reference to be like, oh, okay, so, you know, this is sort of how it started out. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Uh, you know, I liked uh, variety. I mean, uh, I like doing the oddball projects. I like doing, uh, you know, when I actually started at Marvel in the early 70s, uh, 72 to be precise, mm-hmm. uh, no one there really thought of Marvel as exclusively a superhero publisher. You know, they were still throughout the sixties. They had uh, war titles, Western titles, humor titles, you know, Millie the model, you know, like, uh, uh, and then when they began to expand, you know, they did black and white magazines, horror magazines, uh, Kung Fu mag. I mean, what, you know, planet of the apes, uh, Conan, or, I mean, Yep. It was all, you know, they never exclusively thought of themselves as just doing superheroes. And I enjoyed that. And I felt uh, after a while, I mean, uh, all all uh, all I was editing uh, was superheroes. And uh, I think the last non-superhero title I, 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 I gave it up to uh, Denny O'Neill when he came on staff was... Uh, you know, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, like that was, you know, I I had, you know, I enjoyed that so much. Not only was it a good title, not only was Mike Zeck working on it and Doug Mensch and and many others, uh, it was just the variety. Okay. You know, but the idea of like, uh, at that point, I think I was editing Avengers and Captain America and Iron Man and Thor, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Marvel Two and One. It was like, you know, uh, okay, you know, I, I, in my own way, I think I was almost editing as many superhero titles as Stan did early on <laughs> at the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics. It was just a lot, and 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 he he at least could take a break and. Have fun writing a million a model story. 
<laughs> you know, and uh, and that's what that's what I uh, that's what I tried to do by doing all those oddball things that I, I would do and, and editing Marvel Age, even though it was time consuming, I I enjoyed the the editing something different. You know, like uh, I mean, it was difficult because now it would be a lot easier with the digital. Uh, it could be designed on a computer, and <laughs> you know, this was back in the days of typesetting and cutting and pasting, and it was a lot of work. Because uh, you just talked about, you know, all the books that you edited. Is there a run or a storyline that you edited that really holds a, a close place to your heart, uh, <laughs> or is it there just so many that it, it, it's a bit of both? There was. Uh, you know, you, you, you always remember your first, which was a Marvel premiere number 50, which was an Alice Cooper uh, uh, comic, which uh, which is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, there was a, uh, you know, uh, my, my very good friend, David Anthony Kraft, who just passed away recently, uh, uh, and, and along with Ed Hannigan, uh, we, we wanted to do other things uh, to bring you know, people into comics. I mean, one of the things that happened on that first day uh, in 1972 when I came to Marvel, uh, when John Romita was giving me that tour, he said, hey, kid, I hope you have a backup plan because comics aren't going to be around much longer. I mean, that was the conventional wisdom. It was before the comic book stores existed, uh, Mom and pop stores that were, which was the bulk of the distribution, newsstand distribution of the old comics was dying out. So he was trying to give me some helpful advice, you know, like, so I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, destroy my, my life. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I took it seriously. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of times where, uh, for example, uh, you know, there, I, I think what happened is that there was, Two things. There was such an influx of people who loved superheroes more than anything else yeah. that once they got in, you know, they weren't all that interested in doing a, a Sergeant Fury or Kid Colt or Millie the Model. You know, there there are exceptions. You know, there you know people like Carl Potts or Larry Hama. You know, wanted it. You know, they they weren't excited about superheroes. You know, they they were happy to do the other types of stuff. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, the superheroes were, you know, Marvel's bread and butter. And if you were thinking of having a career, you said, "Well, I'll, I'll be more secure editing Spider-Man than Crazy Magazine," right. uh, because literally at one point uh, they were looking for a new editor. Uh, for Crazy Magazine, and you know, I I grew up. I loved Mad Magazine. The idea of editing a humor magazine would would be yet another dream come true. Right. And I, but I had to think of you know maybe I I got a family. Uh, what am I going to do? Uh, I said, well, with my future with the company, does it rise or fall based on the success of Crazy Magazine? And I was told, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, I'll stick with the Avengers and. Uh, the X-Men and uh, all the rest. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, but then as it turned out, I mean, like the, you know, when crazy did finally fold Larry Hama, who was the editor, Mm -hmm. you know, they weren't 
they weren't crazy and, and then right. you know, let someone that valuable go. You know, they gave, they found plenty of comics work for him to continue editing. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, along with uh, Dave Kraft and Ed Hannigan, uh, we were looking for things uh, to expand the, 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 the Marvel's audience uh, in other types of, you know, and we were thinking we were so into uh rock music and there there seemed to be a lot of stuff that was compatible i mean uh uh we had talked about alice cooper first and and there were people who would uh who would contact marvel i mean was you know stan would talk about you know paul mccartney being a fan of marvel and, and thrilled to meet stan lee and you know writing you know that song uh, magneto and titanium man mm-hmm. um and he would have liked to have had a marvel comic and what happens is uh, Stan was publisher and everyone was so overwhelmed with just getting the normal amount of titles out, right. you know, uh, that I think he, I think he sent uh, John Romita senior over to talk to uh, Paul and, uh, and, and John, very sweet, wonderful man. Unlike Stan who could, you know, act like uh, it's no big deal when he met all various superstars. Right. I don't think John, you know, could get over the fact that he was meeting with Paul McCartney, one of the Beatles, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, uh, I remember when he came back from that meeting uh, as a Beatles fan, I had to talk to John, see what was up. And, uh, and it was almost like how I was as a kid. I mean, when I first, you know, like intimidated, I didn't want to, write the mainstream Marvel stuff, you know, like uh, John was telling me that Paul had even asked them. He's like, Oh, you know, uh, you know, we're doing a new group. Uh, I'd like to get a new logo for wings. Right. And uh, I said, well, you should do it, John. Yeah. And he said, Oh no, I, I just got corny ideas. All I could think of is a W with wings on it. So he didn't submit anything. And what did the wings logo turn out to be? <laughs> a w with wings on it. But uh, anyhow, you know, I, uh, you know, the Alice Cooper people at the height of his popularity wanted to do something, but no one, you know, and Marvel knew what to do with it. Right. And there was a point in 1976 where uh, I actually, along with Dave Kraft, we started something called Mad Genius Associates. We were both still freelancing for Marvel. Mm-hmm. But we had sort of come up with the idea that if we treat ourselves more business-like and we rent an office and we have a company, we could, uh, you know, get better deals from Marvel, right. which, as it turned out, we were able to do that. And someone who joined us was uh, Steve Gerber, who was having tremendous success with Howard the Duck at that point. Yeah. So as a result, uh, we, uh, he, w- he was, you know, sharing the office with us. And uh, he would tell we would meet at the little Carnegie Deli in Manhattan and uh, or the Carnegie Deli in Manhattan. And uh, we'd all be telling, you know, what happened this day. And he said, oh, I had this meeting with Stan. He had some crazy idea, you know, do a a book uh, with uh, Kiss. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Steve had no idea who they were. because Dave and I had wanted to do Alice Cooper and couldn't do it. But Dave, you know, he was more into Kiss than I was. My younger brother loved Kiss. 
And so we sort of, you know, we said, Steve, Steve, you know, you got to do this. This will be great. And he's like, what, what, huh? <laughs> and uh, we convinced him. We, we, we sold him on the idea. And, uh, you know, he sort of first introduced them in a, one of the Howard the Duck comics. But uh, this was like a real amazing opportunity in that, it, you know, unbelievable. I mean, this is how much fun we were having. Right. It's like, okay, now we're going to get to work with rock stars. On, and it wasn't going to just be a regular comic book. It was going to be a magazine. This was, uh, I think, Gene Simmons insisted on this, doing it. So when it was distributed on the newsstands, it would be next to all the rock magazines, which would have Kiss plastered all over the covers. They were really huge at that point. Yep. And uh, and his uh, his Gene's sense of uh, promotion combined with Stan Lee, it was unstoppable right. in that, you know, the, the, you know, like the whole concept of the first issue being printed in real kiss blood yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where they Stan and kiss were at the, the printer in Buffalo and the kiss guys had, you know, like, you know, there's vials of their blood that they poured into the red, red ink and all that. <laughs> and, uh, the uh, the amount of publicity was was insane. There was nothing like this at the time, where uh, uh, their their new albums were coming out, and in each album was a little flyer with the cover of the Kiss Number One That's magazine. Awesome. So this was a huge huge success, and we had a you know and we this is exactly what we were trying to do push Marvel into these other areas and, and do all these other types of things, which were, you know, tremendous fun. But, you know, at the same time, you know, uh, Steve was writing it. And, you know, I think uh, Gene saw Kiss as superhero characters. So naturally, you know, they were battling Dr. Doom and all that kind of stuff where, <laughs> you know, which, which worked out uh, wonderfully. So it was, uh, uh, you know, just an exciting time to, to be doing all that stuff. And you're continuing to kind of open new uh, passageways for comics with the paper cuts, you know, getting kids and younger people involved in the books. How important is that for you to, to get young people, not only into comics, but into reading? Well, the, uh, the, the, the good thing is like, uh, uh, I mean, any kind of publishing enterprise is, is incredibly risky. Right. And, uh, you know, when when we started Paper Cuts, my partner, Terry Nantier, who had successfully published and could still publisher of uh, NBM, mm-hmm. uh, his NBM was sort of designed to do more mature uh, European style comics uh, to get, you know, graphic novels into bookstores and libraries. And he was very successful at uh, doing that. Mm-hmm. And after doing that for so many years, he sort of noticed that uh, the audience for the comics, the, the the mainstream Marvel DC type comic books had gotten older. You know, they weren't really aiming their material at, uh, at kids anymore. Right. Uh, what seemed to be attracting children was manga, which was also being distributed in the in bookstores. So his it was his concept, you know, like, why don't we, you know, start a, another company 
uh, I'd be the editor. Uh, we'd be partners. And um, an aim for this audience that, you know, instead of trying to compete in the superhero market, which everyone was doing, let's like carve out a little niche where, you know, no one seems to be going after kids anymore. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll do graphic novels for kids. It'll be like manga in a sense, but, uh, you know, we want to appeal to girls. We want to appeal to uh, boys as well. We want to be more American than the, uh, the manga stuff. And, uh, uh, so started out with such all American characters like Nancy Drew and the Hardy boys, um, and you know, have it be in full color. Have have it, you know, unlike manga, you start, you know, read, you know, no. you know left to right, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the thing was, uh, you know, when we first started, I mean, if you wanted a formula for failure in the comic book stores, do kids comics in, in a manga style, but in libraries and bookstores. You know, we we struck gold, you know, like this was, you know, as if, you know, this is what they were looking for. And then we just kept growing and growing. You know, it's almost 20 years we've been doing this. And like in the beginning, as, a, as I was saying, it like it, it's, it felt like, hey, we wouldn't have any instead of competing with the superheroes, we won't have any competition. Right. Because it was so successful. We have more competition than anyone else. Every single comics publisher, every books, book publisher, the, the, each one of them is launching a kid's graphic novel line. <laughs> you know, So we're competing against everyone. Uh, and, and one of the things that's little known is that this whole segment uh, of kid's graphic novels is now bigger. Than the uh, more successful than the the superhero stuff and the, the the comic book stores the uh, you know it, it it finally is outselling them they're you know and it's mainly because of the books at the top you know like uh, Dogman and you know Tegelmeyer's books you know that sell millions yep. of copies so uh, so we may have started out with you know like oh yes and we got to get kids to but. I think what was discovered is that kids never stopped liking comics. It's just that a combination of things, they, uh, they, you know, they weren't available everywhere like they used to be when I was a kid. Uh, if you went to these comic book stores, uh, you know, like uh, they didn't really have a lot of material that was aimed at kids per se. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to be into, you know, continuity of, of characters for 20 or 30 years. Uh, so so it, it was like a, a tricky thing. And uh, and of course, most of these kids uh, graphic novels are. You could pick up anyone, mm-hmm. you know, you know, they're usually self-contained. Some of them are you know, ongoing series, but a lot, most the majority are just self-contained stories, longer stories of better value. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea of a 32 page comic book is, uh, in, in, in an age where for $10 mm-hmm. you could subscribe to a streaming service right. and get infinite amount of TV shows and movies. Mm-hmm. The idea of $10 getting you maybe three new comic books it's not quite a, a bargain. No. 
<laughs> so, so I, I always liked as a, a kid, and it was very important that that comics were inexpensive. And it was like uh, a lot of the old research uh, showed that comic books were one of the first things kids would buy with their own money. You know, like, uh, you know, there were generations of kids would ride their bike to their 7-Eleven and, you know, for 35 cents, 50 cents, uh, you know, buy some comic books. Right. And uh, it's hard to do that now. Uh, 7-Eleven doesn't have any comic books for sale. Uh, <laughs> I think Walmart might have some, but uh, it's tricky. But one of the things that's, you know, it's fun living in the future. That's how I feel sometimes where things that would have been unheard of, uh, like you would have been laughed at, you know, the idea that you could go to your local public library Mm -hmm. and they have graphic novels and you could read them for free. (laughs) I mean, that's probably the most important thing to me personally, that coming from a poor background, uh, as poor as I was, uh, I was able to somehow, you know, find 12 cents to buy a comic book. Even if I had to like uh, gather up, you know, deposit bottles and cash them in, uh, I I would, you know, you know, if I got an allowance of 25 cents a week, I could get two 12 cent comic books. It, it was, it was wonderful. Uh, but that's really hard for a lot of kids now. So I think getting comics into bookstores mm-hmm. for kids in the kids section where kids can find them and they could discover them was, was huge, you know? So, and, and, and uh, all the statistics, which is why everyone's, <laughs> you know, jumping in, Mm-hmm. Is showing that you know, whereas a lot of other areas in book publishing may be flat or growing slowly, this is something that's been, you know, doing incredibly well. Even during uh, the recent pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, what happened? You know, like we were thinking, oh, what, what, what's going to happen to us? The uh, all the bookstores are are, are closing, uh, but you know, through online sales, digital versions, it all skyrocketed during this period because uh, parents were looking, you know, for things their kids could actually read during this period of time. They weren't going to school. uh, Instead of playing video games or watching cartoons or or whatever, you know, they, they, you know, it wasn't just paper cuts. It was all kids publishing had a huge, you know, like, uh, increase in sales so that was that was wonderful so uh it, it's it's very exciting and i still get to to work on all sorts of uh incredible comics uh i i, I can't believe it it's it's like an, it's never ending uh one title i never thought we'd be working on is uh, asterix i knew it had this uh world famous uh, reputation mm-hmm. it was you know incredibly it's one of the best-selling comics in the world, except for in the United States. And so when it was offered to us, we were flabbergasted and, and, and honored. Uh, and how could we possibly say no? But then we began to look into, I began to look closely and figure out, well, you know, why, why, what's been the, the issue? And one of the things I discovered was that a lot of these were translated um, in Britain. 
during the 60s and 70s. And so here we are in the 2020s uh, in, in the United States, and that's not really compatible. So we recognize we, we have to really do new translations where we went back to the original uh, scripts because the, you know, the, the, they were great translations for the British market and or the European market even, where there's lots of things that, for one, one easy example, is that in Europe to this day, you know, uh, if you're a kid, you're going to school, you probably have a class in Latin. How many U.S. kids <laughs> take Latin? You know, we're lucky if they're taking English at this point. <laughs> but uh, so what happened was they, they wouldn't translate those Latin phrases. They would just run them as is because they knew the audience was familiar with those phrases. All we did was add little footnotes, you know, in the bottom of the page, translating them making it as accessible as we could possibly make it to a uh, an American audience. I mean, the, co- the concept of Asterix is very simple. I mean, it's the classic underdog characters. It's almost like Popeye in that he's in this little Gaulish village that, you know, the Romans want to invade and conquer, you know, under Julius Caesar and back in 50 BC. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, they have a druid who's come up with a potion uh, that gives the, the villagers, particularly Asterix, you know, super strength and vulnerability so they could hold back the forces of the mighty Roman Empire. It's a very simple right. concept, and it's a lot of humor. Uh, Rene Gossinet, the writer of uh, Asterix, before he, you know, created Asterix, uh, he was working in the U.S. in a studio side by side with Harvey Kurtzman and Jack Davis and you know, so if you like their humor, like I did, yeah, it's it's very reminiscent of that. These are funny characters. It's just getting over that initial hurdle of this is some strange thing. I didn't grow up seeing it on TV or, yeah. you know, so uh, uh, but once you get hooked into it, uh, you find that the, the stories are super easy to understand. Our translations, you know, are, are a lot of fun. Uh, we we particularly enjoy the the making up Hunnish names for you know and Americanizing them in a way that you know because it's the, the 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 version that some people mistakenly think is the original version is really the British ad- adaptation of these French graphic novels. So uh, so it, it's it's that that's that's been a challenge. You know, like how can we do this? And the good news is. Uh, you know, we're already going into third printings on on our volumes, and uh, and it's it's one of our best selling titles on Amazon. So, uh, uh, and and it's just beautiful. The artwork is excellent. The writing is excellent. Uh, it's like a, a you know discovering another you know the joy I had you know reading the Marvel stuff when I was growing up. I could have this joy now, you know, reading the the Asterix stuff. And one of the advantages to Asterix versus the U.S. stuff is there's really about only 38 Asterix uh, graphic novels. If you suddenly today decided, gee, I like Spider-Man, I want to read every Spider-Man story, 
Good luck. Good luck to you. You know, like, oh, well, <laughs> Batman, how about that? Oh, well, it's only a few thousand Batman stories. Uh, uh, but this is, you know, you could get the core asterisks. You know, you could read, uh, you know, one a month for a couple of years and you, you're done. <laughs> you, you, even though there's a, there's a new one, maybe every couple of years, you know, it's, but it, it's, it's doable. Oh, you yeah. could actually uh, read all this uh, great material and, and it shows it's like the difference between uh, certainly when I was editing, you know, there was never any choice. You know, if, if you had to get another issue of Thor out, and, and you didn't have Stanley, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have Jack Kirby, you didn't have uh, John Buscema. Mm-hmm. You, you had to take what you had and, you know, do your best. And, uh, you know, sometimes it wasn't the greatest, you know, and, uh, it's hard to compete and follow in those footsteps. But with, with, uh, with this material, you know, uh, they were produced at the rate of maybe one graphic novel every couple of years. And uh, it shows. It's just uh, amazing, amazing, beautiful artwork. You know, wonderful writing, great characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it really becomes addictive. You know, like uh, you you can't. It, it's like all you'll wind up thinking is, uh, Asterix, uh, where were you all my life? You know. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of fun, but but you know we do. Just like I was talking about with, uh, when I was at Marvel, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing things that that kids would be aware of. You know, like uh, you know, Loud House is uh, the, the most popular show on uh, uh, you know Nickelodeon. We do the graphic novels with working with a lot of the writers and and uh, animators. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them at some point uh, had a fantasy that maybe they want to do a comic book story. So they they've been very supportive and and, and contribute uh, to our uh, graphic novels. Casa Grande's mm-hmm. uh, the spinoff from Loud House. We're publishing that as a series as well. So we do things. We're not just trying to, you know, find you know, classic European material with funny names that don't mean anything. We, we, we want to stay in business. So we do have, uh, you know, stuff that, that kids are well aware of, you know, from Geronimo Stilton to the Smurfs, which mm-hmm. is the weird you know, title that actually is all those things. It mm-hmm. actually is, you know, a European, uh, you know, comic series that started over 60 years ago, but to Americans, they think, oh, that's that, you know, Hanna-Barbera, you know, cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon series from the uh, the 80s, you know, which <laughs> it was. And now there's going to be a new animated series coming from Nickelodeon with the Smurfs. So, so we got a lot of stuff and it, it keeps us busy. And, uh, um, you know, there are times uh, where I miss, uh, editing the, 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 the comic books mm-hmm. because the trend now for graphic novels is thicker books. Yeah. So instead of like I was doing when uh, I was editing uh, Avengers or Fantastic Four where the stories were from 17 pages to maybe a whopping 22 pages, 
now we do books that are, you know, minimum 120 some pages. And uh, when we do something like uh, even the, the Smurfs or Asterix, uh, we're combining uh, three of the original uh, albums into one big book. So we have a, a book that has, you know, close to 200 pages. Right. So, you know, my eyes are <laughs> getting bleary <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a lot of material. I mean, it really is. In, in terms of, you know, a bargain again, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I still go to the comic book store every Wednesday and I pick up a lot of stuff and I love comics and I always will. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, it, it doesn't take that long to get through, you know, your average comic book these, these days. Right. Whereas, you know, to pick up these, uh, you know, graphic novels, even the ones for kids, you know, you need a bookmark. <laughs> you know, there, there. It's a lot of material. Mm -hmm. A lot of the European stuff. Uh, one page of uh, of Asterix is at the very least, you know, the equivalent of two pages of an American comic. Wow. Usually, more like four pages in terms of actual content. And you know, they have more rows of panels. They have you know, sometimes more dialogue and more, you know, it's just, and a lot of story and you're getting complete stories. It's, it's uh, really quite something, but it's, uh, it makes my job hard, <laughs> but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not complaining. I, I willingly uh, took this on and I, I'm it's loving it. It sounds like you guys are doing well. And what's the best way for folks to define stuff for paper cuts, the different titles? Uh well, when bookstores open up again, uh, we're we're there. You can request it from them. You can always go to Amazon. You can, we're even in you know some of the uh, the uh, wiser comic book stores will have kids sections. Uh, you can go to papercuts with a Z at the end dot com. Right. Look at our website. That'll give you an idea of what we're publishing. It's probably, uh, you know less expensive to order through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Okay. Uh, everything's available digitally as eBooks and what have you. So a uh, comiXology, all our books are available from them mm -hmm. and something like Asterix, as much as I like uh, hard copies of everything, that art is so good. And the, um, the, 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 the restrictions of the, of today's uh, book market, is they, they, they don't like the large European size uh, albums. They prefer, you know, more, you know, compact type of books. Right. So I find when I'm editing uh, Asterix and I have the artwork on my computer screen and it's like far larger than the, even the original graphic novels, you could really appreciate it and look in, look at the detail and uh, get lost in that world. So so getting getting these comics digitally is uh, you know a lot of fun as well. That's awesome and cheap. Yeah, it saves you some uh, extra dollars in your pocket. And libraries, you know, for crying out loud, I mean, uh, if someone is uh, you know doesn't want to risk any money looking at our graphic novels, uh, most libraries, uh, if they don't have it themselves, they could order it from another library and get it for you for free. 
It's a great how can you How can you go wrong? You have nothing <laughs> to lose. If you don't like it, just you return it. Uh, no big deal. You no harm, no foul. <laughs> still I, still buy another Batman comic. You know? This is true. Yeah, I, I have a, a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, so I will definitely be picking some of those up and uh, putting them in their hands. There's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, we even have some silly superhero parody type comics, which I get a big kick out of. Mm-hmm. One is called a Super Club with a with a crazy little girl and her imaginary adventures. And another one is uh, uh, Astro Mouse and, and Lightbulb, okay. which is a, uh, you know, a uh, spacefaring uh, superhero mouse and his uh, sentient uh, lightbulb sidekick. I won't begin to tell you who Kaka is, but that's a... <laughs> well, that, it sounds awesome. And I, I wish you guys so much continued success with Paper Cuts. And as a fan, I just want to say thank you to you so much for all the work you've done in comics for all of us. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a huge part of our lives. And again, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. Oh, my pleasure. You know, it's like uh, the worst thing... Uh, in editing comics, uh, whether it was at Marvel or Tops or anywhere I've worked uh, at Paper Cuts, is you don't want to work on something that you recognize as being truly great, mm-hmm. and 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 no one sees it. You right. know, so so thank you for allowing me to mention a few things, and uh, uh, and if and if people liked what I did before, uh, there's a chance. Uh, you know, they might like what we're doing now and uh, they should check it out. A hundred percent. One hundred percent indeed. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, that was our interview with Jim Salakrup. Uh, I never really knew too much about him prior to this interview. Um, so, Lauren, great job. I, I really learned a lot about him. Uh, he had a great career. And, you know, again, prior to this, I never really thought of the comics book, comic books, comics book, the comic book code authority them uh of I, I never really actually thought of them as a an actual entity or people uh, i just thought you know like we mentioned earlier uh that it was just a bunch of rules that people followed so uh the fact that he was running artwork to get their approval i thought that was pretty amazing yeah he's a, a fellow who oversaw so many uh big stories and really crucial to Marvel's success, you know, in not only the 80s, but going forward. Uh, another guy who I think, you know, we'd love to have on again, because I'm sure there's a lot more that we didn't even touch on uh, that he saw and was part of in his career. Yeah, and I want to bring it back to, uh, you know, his current position at Paper Cuts, like uh, Oren mentioned earlier. Uh, just really, you know, really defined that space, the the kids uh, graphic novel space. And now there are just so many other players in there. But Paper Cuts was the first to really, um, you know, show that there can be something again for kids um, in, in comics. So um, definitely look that up. Uh, if you're a parent, I encourage you to get some of those books. They're great. Uh, but that'll do it for this edition of Dollar Bin Bandits. Uh, we will see you next time. Peace. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. 
Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.